everyone. This is Amanda Borchel Dan. And I'm Jessica Steinberg. Your host for Times Will Tell, a weekly podcast from the Times of Israel. Hello, Times Will Tell listeners. We are here this week with Dr. Tova Hartman, Dean of the Faculty of Humanities at the Ono Academic Campus and founder for the purposes, mostly, of our conversation, of the Yishtira Chadashah Congregation in Jerusalem, which was the first of its kind, a religious community that combines a commitment to halakha, Jewish law, with a very serious commitment to prayer and feminism. At the time of its founding, 20 years ago, it drew a lot of criticism from many Orthodox rabbis who opposed women and women coming up and reading from the Torah. But it was an idea that Tova Hartman built with her fellow founders, and it really spawned an entire movement in Judaism of what we call partnership minyanim, communities committed to Jewish law as well to, as to feminism in prayer and in action. Just the the second half of our interview, we'll also talk about Tova's academic work, and she is working hard to make the world of academia accessible to the ultra-Orthodox population within the multicultural campuses of Ono Academic Campus. Tova, thank you for being with us. Thank you for inviting me. Okay. So let's get started with Shirah Hadashah and that conversation, which you started 20 years ago. If I remember correctly, it had a lot to do with three daughters that you have. And tell us a little bit about what was going on in your head at the time and where your kids were and why at that moment you said, I've got to do this. So my oldest daughter became 12 years old. And I wanted her to celebrate her bat mitzvah, not just with a party and not just with a little walk in the museum, but actually to celebrate it through religious ritual. And at the time, there really was nothing. There was no synagogue for me to go and celebrate with her that also had the mechitza, separation for men and women, and it just didn't exist. I then made a just a separate service for her specific party, for her, for her bat mitzvah and then for a different kind of party. So the issue was what happens the day after her bat mitzvah? Do then do we go back to being behind the curtain, behind the mechitza, or is there any continuation? And it just started eating at me the fact that I just did something once and there was no follow-up. I went at that point from rabbi to rabbi, from orthodox, so-called modern orthodox synagogues around in Jerusalem, trying to pitch my idea <laughs> and to, sit, to try to show with them, to sit with them, to learn with them, to show that there really is no serious halachic reason why we can't make this change. Right. Or rather that there are, we can make this change. So most of them were polite to me. I'm relatively a nice lady. They sat with me and then they just said, no. Some said, I don't agree with your halachic basis. Others said, yes, you're right. The halachic basis has some, um, some strength, some force. It, it can be, but we will not allow it to happen in our synagogues. And at first I was very, I was really deeply depressed and I felt so alien then to anything. And I didn't know what to do because I felt like I really failed. I failed myself, what I care about. And I failed for my daughter's education. 
And then slowly it dawned on me that I don't have to change anybody else. They don't want to change. That's really okay. I need them to start something. And I gathered a few people, a few friends. We met twice. We didn't have these like years of planning, which is something that usually stops any kind of. Right. And we just said, we're starting. And what was important was just the honesty in starting and saying, we don't have rabbis behind us. We don't need rabbis behind us. And we are not going to, as well, you mentioned that many rabbis were against it at the beginning. We're very against it. And I made a decision that I'm not arguing with the rabbis either. Right. We live in a democracy. (laughs) I'm allowed to pray in the way I want to pray. And we're going to start it. So what happened in those in that first year, let's say? How did it progress? So at first, when I was pitching then that idea already to other people, some said, who do you think you are to start something like this? We need a great rabbi. And the only thing I would say is there are no great rabbis. It's just me. So I can say, I'm a nobody, but you're invited to a shul. The other thing that people said is that nobody has a need for it. That no one needs a synagogue like this. No one needs a synagogue that is both halachic, that belongs to orthodoxy in some form or other, and women participate in the ritual. People said there just is no need for it. And if there was a need, someone great would have started it. But there is no need for it. And I didn't know how much of a need there was. I have to say, I, I knew that I needed it. From the time that I was a little girl, I needed it. I wanted it. I needed it. And all those things that people would say, like, what, you want to be a boy? Or what, you're really so religious that you'll come to shul every Shabbos at eight to start? Like, they basically tried to put me down in my religious desires. Mm -hmm. And I had to prove that I was really serious. So to that, I always used to say, I'm really not serious, but we're starting a shul. (laughs) But I felt that You know, I teach psychology, and very often I say the definition of insanity is when you think you're the only sane person. (laughs) Yeah. So I did really did not think I was the only one who needed this. I didn't know how many people would come. We did not know what it would touch. And in the first year, I mean, you could not get a seat on Shabbat. It it was so crowded. You had to move to a, a bigger hall. We had to move to a bigger hall. But what I think that it really... I began to think about that whole question of needs and what's the place of leadership with needs. And I think often that leaders don't have to only cater to needs, but they also can create needs. And that's something that I think, I mean, just in brackets, is why I always wonder in some of these statistics and these these questionnaires that are sent to people all over the world, like, how much do you belong to a Jewish thing? And then they come with all the answers and they say, this is the situation of the Jewish people now. And I think that we can create needs or say that, you know something, your needs can expand. We don't, we're not born with a certain set of needs and die with the same set of needs. I mean, if you ask women in 1910, if they had a need to vote, the vast majority would say, who has a need to vote? And if you ask now women, even ultra-Orthodox women, the most conservative women, they would all say, what a question. Of course we have to vote. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think that whole idea of fixed needs and are we catering to needs or do we create new needs is something that we thought about a lot, the group of us who started the shul. And we really saw that it touches upon people and it touched people, not only women, women and men who didn't think that they had this need. Right, this need to have a different kind of synagogue experience. Okay, so then Shira Chadashah expands and grows and becomes popular beyond anything that you imagine. But of course, you did not set out to create a movement. Right. And you ended up, Shira Chadashah and you ended up creating the partnership minion movement, if we want to call it that. But take us through those early years, because it became much more than just a synagogue uh, a Shabbat synagogue experience. It became a community, as you mentioned. It became a group. The, there was the local group of people. There were the people who would visit from the outside and want to see what is this thing that you have created here in Jerusalem. Tell us a little bit about it. So people really came to shul from all over the world, from all denominations, and were moved both by the seriousness of prayer and by the ability to include women in so many more areas of ritual. Many people who came said, how do you do it? We want to do this in our communities. And I think it's important. I didn't want to create a new movement in Judaism. I didn't think that that was was not my mission and that was not my goal. And I shared with people what we did, what was important for us, how we got to what we did. But it was very clear to me that every community is going to have to take these values, and do them in the way that makes sense to them. Communities are different. There's places where there's a community and there's only one shul. I wouldn't want them to there to be a breakaway and there wouldn't even be a minion. That is something that was very clear to me, that what was possible in one neighborhood in Jerusalem is not something that could necessarily be done in every everywhere else. And I was very clear that there isn't a one-way thing. It's not like we created a new young Israel. Oh, there's young Israel and then there's Chirach Hadasha. And people also felt compelled by different things in their feminist uh, cause or their feminist devotion. Some felt, you know, this was not for them because there wasn't total equality. Others felt that we included too, you know, in too many areas there was inclusion. So I think that people left the shul those who visited, with sort of a kind of um, a roadmap of how we did things and what made sense, but an openness to the fact that they could do it in their communities in different ways. And I think that was that was very important for me. It was one of the things that were, you know, I really did not want this idea that this is the, the way with the, the T- T-H-E, the way. And if you don't do it this way, then you're not a partnership minion. It's not at all that way. People have different commitments. People have different fears. People have different relationships to rabbis. Sure, sure, sure. And obviously, Shirak Hadashah has many rabbis who are members, but no rabbi leads the shul. No, there is no rabbi. There is, there, we did not wait for that rabbinic uh, permission. Mm-hmm. We really didn't do that. And I think if in one way, one of the most revolutionary things of Shirah Hadashah, which is revolutionary also for the conservative movement and also for the reform movement, wow. was that we there was no rabbinic, you're allowed, you're not allowed. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that that is something that was very different. And it was really a community-driven, 
of course, in Jerusalem, we had the luxury of many people who were learned in Jewish law and in other things, but still there was a sense. I know some people asked their rabbis if they were allowed to come. Right. And most of the rabbis said they're not allowed to come. But after, even when rabbis started in orthodoxy saying it's okay, there's some that, I was always very clear. I started this without a rabbi. I wasn't looking for rabbinic permissions anymore. It was, how did I feel? I wanted to, at first, bring up my daughters and uh, being a mother and then also being a daughter. I realized what happened a lot in the shul is that older women started coming to shul. And what we thought we were doing only for our daughters, we were also doing for our mothers. And for our fathers and sons and brothers (laughs) on the other side. I think that what you're saying is so correct. It was the idea was that fathers wanted something different for their sons and daughters. Right, to see something different. Okay, so we know that you didn't intend to to make huge waves, really, but you did. So when you look now at orthodoxy, let's say Israel, let's just take Israel to, for the moment, or, or Jerusalem even, things have changed a lot in orthodoxy as a result of Shirach HaDashah, as a result of so-called partnership minions. In fact, define partnership minion. Do that for me. So I think partnership minion are minyanim that women and men are partners in. They discuss together how prayer should be. They discuss how the community should look like. They discuss what does it mean to do a chesed charity project. I mean, there's a sense that men and women are partners in this. They are not yet completely equal in the sense that women do not lead yet all parts of the services. I'm hopeful that it will happen. This was something that I personally gave up on, the notion of complete equality. I still am ambivalent about that, to be very honest. I believe that there's ways in Jewish law that they can be completely equal in, in prayer. And I think that that is the way that I wish it will become. But I think that when you ask, like, what is Jerusalem now like? People used to come to Shirah HaDashah and could not get a seat. Now Shirah HaDashah is a community uh, shul, is a community, uh, it's just really is around the German colony and those who can walk around it. But every five blocks, there's another partnership minion so that people also who have different needs, you know, they nuance things. and They can adjust it. Yeah, and all that, you know, and, you know, just typical to all Jewish groups, someone is going to say, I'm different because I'm not them. But there's multiple partnership minyanim all over Jerusalem now. Okay, and would you expand that into the into Israel, into the world? Will you take a stab at that and say what you think has happened? I think that it as well. All over Israel, there are partnership minyanim. It's not that there's so many, but it has touched the kibbutz movement, which, you know, in a really funny way, one might think that they're so radical because of their socialism and other parts of their religious traditions, but they were very, very traditional in women's roles in ritual. And now it's in many different kibbutzim. They have minyanim. It's not every week. They try. But there's always there are a group of people in every kibbutz who is thinking about it and is trying to think what kinds of changes. In many, many communities all over, and as well, you know, over the green line, you know, settlements, one might think, oh, they're so traditional there. They're so right-wing. But in this matter, there's a lot of questions and there's a lot of attempts at thinking how 
can we create different kinds of communities, of religious communities, where women take on a bigger role. It's no longer, you know, oh my God, wow, you, when my daughter had her bat mitzvah, my oldest daughter, and her, during her bat mitzvah, none of the boys in her class would come. They were told they were not allowed to. Right. Now, I think that if you say you will do it in many, many areas, people will not say, oh my God, how could you even think of doing such a thing? So it's more than just in which places is there such a minyan, but it's also how do they think about the minyan and how do they think about women's participation in religious ritual? I mean, there's something, you know, very challenging, I would say, in traditional orthodoxy is that, you know, women are neurosurgeons. Women can be the heads of the Supreme Court, but they can't lead ashray. There's something bizarre. There's something that just doesn't fit. As a, for me, there was a disconnect. And I think that for that disconnect is being has touched many different people. And your oldest granddaughter just had her bat mitzvah yes. at Shirah Hadashah. It was really... I your, mean, old, your oldest daughter's daughter. daughter. My oldest daughter's daughter, who came to be 12 years old, who's, been, who's brought up you know, in a religious community, on her own said she would like to have a bat mitzvah in Shirah Hadashah. Hmm. Now... I have to say that my oldest daughter, with my oldest daughter, I forced her. People thought I was a horrible mother. And I said, there is no party. There's no secular, there's no religious ritual. And people said to me, what kind of mother are you? Don't you know you should just, if she wants, that's okay. But how do you say she has to? And I used to that, I used to just answer that, you know, why don't you ask me, why do I say she has to go to school? Why don't you say she has to brush her teeth? Why did you say you, why do you force her to say my Israel or sing with her before she goes to sleep? None of you ask that, but about her doing something different for her bat mitzvah, that's the thing that I have to wait for it to come from inside. Uh -huh. So I went, so what was really interesting is when she asked me, yeah. my granddaughter said that I would like to have a bat mitzvah in your shul. It's really, she feels it's her shul as well. Right. When she was born, her mother named her in our shul, but she doesn't live in Jerusalem. So right. it's not her natural community. And she just said, cause this is what I want to do. And when she had her, you know, when she had her aliyah and when she read, I mean, there was really that feeling of how many Orthodox women can say that their granddaughter, you know, had, an, had a bat mitzvah in the shul that, that she started. Yeah. And it was very, very meaningful in the sense that she also invited her class and her class did come and some, you know, the, out of Jerusalem, but it was boys and girls from her class did sleep over at friends and cousins wow. to come. And it's a, that was very meaningful to me. And it was also very meaningful to the community, that sense sure. that there is, that because there is continuity, that it, you know, it meant something to many different people. To see that continuity. Yeah. Hi, Times Will Tell listeners. We're glad you're with us for Times Will Tell, our weekly Times Visual podcast. You should also check out our daily briefing, the 15-minute podcast dropped every Sunday through Thursday, in which we speak to our fellow Times of Israel reporters and correspondents, covering the very latest news and headlines. You can subscribe to the daily briefing wherever you find your podcasts. You just brought us into the professional part of the conversation because you you said something that is very much I think of psychologist Tova about 
telling children what to do. Now you are you are a psychologist, you're an academic, you've written many books about a lot of different topics within psychology. And a few years ago, you began working at Ono College and delving into a whole other area, which is bringing ultra-Orthodox women and Arab into academia. So where and how, when, when did that enter your sphere? Tell us a little bit about it. So about 10 years ago, when my father died, I took a half a year off. I needed to just be with myself and my thoughts and and I was, you know, a regular academic. I, you know, was in gender studies. I had all these wonderful doctoral students and I enjoyed them and I enjoyed it. But I started feeling like I was just talking to myself and this group of students were really terrific students and I loved them. But we were just in a very small place and it really was almost like a caricature of what academics are. You know, you talk to a small group of people, you think you're having amazing influence on the world because they all wrote doctorates on a little kvetch of something <laughs> of your first books. Right. So, and there was a sense also like, um, it also had to do a little bit with my father, that kind of thing that when you see that there's challenges in society, instead of kvetching about them, what do you, can you do something to change? And I was asked to start the School of Education, Graduate School of Jewish Studies at Ono, to open up an Ono Academic College. I was looking about who has access to higher education. Mm -hmm. You know, there's all these statistics coming out every year, which, where, who, who's making more money, where are people working, where do people feel comfortable? I remember when I taught at Hebrew University, I remember the Arab students always getting the lowest grades. And in my head, I was like, something is wrong. So it could be language, it could be, but, and then I realized how many Arab students aren't even in the college. And so I tried to, my goal was to make higher education accessible. Mm -hmm. And the only place that I could really do it was if I started a school of education where the whole college's goal really supported this. And so I started um, the School of Education. It, we started about seven years ago. We had then no students. And now we have over four campuses, 7,000 students in the School of Education and in Jewish Studies. And how, do they break, how does it break down in terms of where they're from? So I don't think, I would say a third maybe, maybe a third are from ultra-Orthodox. Okay. A third are Arabs, and the rest are Hebrew-speaking Israelis who usually are first generation to the academy. 90% of our students are first generation to the academy. And to academic, in other words, to academic work, to a BA? Yeah. Okay, got it. Now, what are people, you know, in terms of school of education, so what, what, what do they end up at? Where do they end up going to work, basically? We have an ultra-Orthodox track. Maybe I'll start with that. And that's something that interests a lot of people as well. And we are attacked all the time because in the ultra-Orthodox track, men and women study separately. And the question is, can men and women study separately? How do we allow such a thing? You know, and isn't this against your feminism, Tova? And I just say, this is exactly my feminism. This is exactly it. And the feminism for me is about 
invisibility. It was about the invisibility of women beforehand. And then it's about invisibility, just invisibility. And so the sense is who would, did not feel that they could go to universities, who felt and who knew they wouldn't be accepted and who could, they needed to study in a way that they felt comfortable with their culture. So in in ultra-Orthodoxy, it makes sense that they're going to study separately because they'll feel more comfortable. So they study separately. And it's not only that they feel more comfortable, they wouldn't wouldn't go to the universities. They just wouldn't. The universities are close to them. And I felt that when we say accessible, we have to mean it. We don't just say, everybody's welcome and you could be just like me. I'm not ultra-Orthodox and I would not send my daughters to a single-sex school at college. I don't think, even though there's good reasons and there's still some in the States that have it. But generally, I did not want this for my daughters and I didn't study this way. But for me, I'm a daughter of privilege and I could choose where I wanted to go. The choices that I and my daughters have is are not the choices that many other people have. And it feels to me, I'm not trying again to change the universities. They should continue and they're doing fabulous work. And I gained so much from being a product of those universities, but those, they're not for everybody. Okay. And higher education can be accessible. And we just have to think, how do we do it? We don't level, we don't lower the level of their studies. But yes, we, you know, very often when I would bring in just little clips and videos of, to show like sort of just look at how this takes place in modern culture to those things I had to change in the ultra-Orthodox campuses. But, but we, there's thousands of women and men going back into their communities, back into their educational systems. And I think bringing, bringing about change. They're going back in with college degrees now. They're going back with college degrees. They're going back, which means they get a higher salary, which means they've studied certain issues that they couldn't study in their ultra-Orthodox seminaries or the men in their yeshivot. I mean, they really are dealing with serious educational issues. And I would consider it a failure of mine if they stopped being ultra-Orthodox. Got it. I'm not trying to change them as people. I'm trying to help them go back and take care of their kids. I mean, the the amount of adolescents at risk in the ultra-Orthodox communities is huge. One of our one of our tracks is working with adolescents at risk. That's one of the tracks that you go within the ultra orthodox. Yes, yes. Okay. and they go back and to see them in the streets at nights. I mean, I went walked with them sometimes and to see what they're doing and how they're doing, and they're really making a difference. They are making a difference. Yes. And what about the Arab track? No, so there isn't an Arab track okay. in the sense, but for example, for East Jerusalem, they come in first year as an Arab track because they don't know Hebrew. They really need help in Hebrew. They have, one of the things that I was surprised about even is for Arabs from all over Israel, how little Hebrew they know, even if they did a matriculation in Hebrew. Well, they don't speak it on a regular basis. They don't speak it. And they just, so the idea, I knew the idea of integrating into the regular college meant not to have them come in first year. It meant really working on Hebrew, on skills. And then when they come in, even so to have two or three classes where they just meet teachers who can speak Hebrew and Arabic, who can help them join. 
work on their on their subjects in their languages. In their languages, and then to help them also with Hebrew, there is a need to slowly integrate them into college. It, again, was not the idea that you can become like me, mm-hmm. and therefore, if you, if you make it, you know, this kind of sink or swim. Right, right. People also have issues with that, and I understand their issues, because they're afraid we're creating just Arab tracks, and Arabs are just going to be, and not study, and not be integrated. Mm-hmm. But what I know as a teacher is that people need help. It's okay to get help. <laughs> and it's, I feel very committed to the fact that I can no longer blame Ben-Gurion or Moshe Dayan on the evils of society in Israel. We have, a, we have inherited yeah. a situation where in East Jerusalem, the kids, the vast majority of the kids don't have a future. The very brightest will go to the universities and it's wonderful. And they do with them and for them fabulous things. But what percentage of society is that? But not that big. And so that same, how do we integrate them into the workforce? I mean, the past generals of the army and even Bibi Netanyahu and others say the biggest threat to Israel's security is an Arab population that does not have a professional future. And so... What we're trying to do is to give professions, but we have to do a lot of work. It's, and it's not, and it's also even when they're in classes together, mm-hmm. say third year, they're all, you know, we try to integrate. It's not enough. All of our PowerPoints okay. are translated now into Arabic. And wow. if they haven't, we're trying to, it's just that idea of understanding right. that if we don't make changes in, from the little things to the big things, to places. When they go to sign up, there has to be someone who speaks Arabic. When they register for college, when they choose classes, when they go to pay, there has to be otherwise. So people say, what do you mean? Don't you I want them to integrate? Yes, it's in order to integrate. It's a process. It's a process and it's a difficult process. And, you know, when you start taking integration seriously, there's a lot of work. So then is this the kind of thing that you think should happen in other universities or colleges around Israel? As someone who's been in the system in a few different universities? You know, I would say, I don't, again, sort of very similar to Shira Hadashah and that said, I'm not telling other people what they need to do. I'm not just like, you know, I didn't tell people you're not feminist, you are, women can daven, they can't daven this way. I need to do, I want change, so I need to create change. If it influences you, fine, just as long as you let me do what I need to do. And the same thing here, people also would say, you know, there's a million schools of education, why do you need to open up another one? Mm -hmm. So I'm just saying now there's 7,000 students in a school of education. So we have now a campus in Haifa, we have a campus that's going to be built in Savion, mm-hmm. that's now in Kiryat Ono, that's going to be built on Savion, we have in Jerusalem. We had two ultra-Orthodox campuses. But we are also even there creating differences because at first, the ultra-Orthodox communities and the students would insisted that they be in a separate building that they never see. Uh-huh. So now what we're starting to do, we saw ways that we could help them. There's now going to be only one library in these places, but their classes are still meeting them where they're at. During third year, all students are offered for credit if they want or for not roundtable discussions. They don't only study our students, but it's really related to what's going on 
out there. In the professional world. In the, in the whole world. In their professional world, they don't only study from books, but they start already now. We're starting from first year to go out into the professional world. You're, you're learning about disabilities. You're going to start working with people with disabilities from first year. Right. in order to get them integrated, to get them to understand the relationship between what they're studying. And what they're going to do. Right, right. And so what we've seen now is that we're opening that to as well an integrated group of ultra-Orthodox and and, not, and some are joining already earlier on in their... They're ready for it. They're readier for it. But we're so I'm trying to not keep it like, the, you know, it's either the ultra-Orthodox or the not, and they're only going to meet each other. But we have boxes for those that feel comfortable and that's their only way, but we're opening them to give them many different opportunities. So what I'm saying is that this is something that I care about. I care very much about accessibility. Ono College is all about accessibility. It's saying that we want to create campuses and we want to create curriculum. We want to create a situation where the academy is accessible to people who don't come from homes where it was just a natural thing for them to do their BA. And so if the universities want to do a little bit of it or they don't want to do it, that's okay because they have their own raison d'etre. And so will it change? How will it change? We don't know. But what I do know is that there's a lot of need for it. Right. And I, I mean, to sort of to sum up in a sense, you never set out to make all these changes in the world around you, but in the, but you have. And when you allow yourself to reflect on that, what do you think about? I feel very grateful. I really feel very grateful that I live in a democracy. Mm -hmm. I know it may sound silly, but I actually am grateful for it. And I know there's a lot of challenges. And I, perhaps another time we can speak about the challenges that I've learned along the way. There's many more places that our society is wounded. Yeah, I'd say our Israel is wounded. But I try to do something about not continuing to wound. So I'm trying to say that it doesn't have to always be wounding others. Mm -hmm. And so I am grateful that I'm in that position. I'm grateful that I could start a shul. We could start. It wasn't me. We were a group. That we could start a shul that really made change and create a change in Jewish world. Sure. And when I see some of the women who are graduating in the ultra-Orthodox communities and seeing where they're going. And some actually are going to universities doing their doctorates. Some are going back to their Beit Yaakov schools, making change. I just, my heart feels very, very soothed. And I think that what it says to me a lot is that although there's a lot of painful parts of Israel now, and we're more aware of them than we were before, but I believe there's a lot more hope as well. And I believe that that, and it's true. Tova Hartman, thank you for being with us and Times Will Tell. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for listening to Times Will Tell from the Times of Israel. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein. Please subscribe wherever you find your podcast and check out our daily briefing news show every Sunday through Thursday. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. Until next week. Shalom. Shalom.